Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we explore issues at the intersection of politics, economics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Seth, after our last podcast about our pet peeves, uh, we promised our listeners that we'd come back to a more serious discussion mm-hmm. and one that might be more relevant to today's political discourse. There were a lot of things to choose from, but I think today's topic is going to end up being particularly important. For sure. This topic has been prompted by comments from people all over the political spectrum, effectively postulating that America has gotten dumber, particularly over the last few decades. And this does seem to ring true to me personally, as like every day seems to bring a new example of head-scratching comments or behavior by both our leaders and ordinary Americans. To be clear, I don't think either of us mean that we're leveling this charge at just conservatives, although as we talked about in an earlier podcast, conservatism does tend to lend itself to seemingly irrational positions, at least from a community perspective. But there are plenty of examples of what we're calling stupidity among liberals as well. Yeah, and I think overall there's a deep-seated irony here. We're the most scientifically advanced culture that ever was. Yet we struggle with thinking objectively and critically about community issues. I agree. And instead, we just go to war with each other on an emotional level, losing sight of just how important it is that we make thoughtful decisions about all of the crises and serious issues that are currently facing us. Clearly, we're not going to cover every example we can here, but I still can't get over how certain positions get popularized despite objective evidence and provable facts to the contrary. I know what you mean. This type of thing cuts across the board from scientific issues like evolution and climate change and vaccines to political issues like assumed election fraud. And even silly things. I mean, Mark, you know, did you know that 7% of American adults believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows? <laughs> I gotta say, I just hope they're joking when they respond that way. Then again, despite having actual satellite images of the Earth, there are still an alarming number of people who think the world is flat. Okay, so let's discuss if it's indeed true that we're getting dumber. And if so, why and what can we potentially do about it? Let's start by defining our terms, because the words dumb or stupid are actually pretty vague and uh, more than a little provocative. A lot of people, us included, throw around those terms, and while there may well be truly stupid people around, that's almost always a pejorative shorthand for something more subtle. After all, the dumbest human is far smarter than the smartest member of all the other species we share this planet with. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. So let's define our terms a little better. So the way we're thinking of it, I think we could put quote unquote dumbness into three general categories. Category one is there's just ignorance. Ignorance just means you haven't learned something. You're, you're not aware of something. Category two is something we'll call intellectual stubbornness. Some people call this willful ignorance. It's like our eyes and ears are open, but we refuse to acknowledge that what we see is contrary to our presumed beliefs, <laughs> effectively being sort of passive consumers of every bit of false information that comes our way. And I think the third category is what I'll call sort of weak critical thinking skills. Just, you know, some people do lack the ability to analyze, see patterns and really understand our increasingly complex and connected world. You know, I think the critical thinking point, a lot of that too is probably related to training and education. I I think most people are capable of doing more than what they do. It's just they have to get in the practice of doing it. For sure. But, you know, referring to your second point about intellectual stubbornness, getting around that requires a mindset, I think, that's willing and used to reflect on its own self as objectively as it can, or at least as objectively as a self-centered animal can. And that's not easy. You know, that brings us to another psychological phenomenon, and, you know, we're big fans of those. So let's talk about this new one. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. 
It's a type of cognitive bias whereby people with limited knowledge or competence in a certain domain greatly overestimate their knowledge or competence in that domain. And this may be because the ability to recognize one's own deficiencies requires at least a minimum level of knowledge or competence that hasn't been obtained. <laughs> so it's a bit of an irony here. And the scientists who coined this phrase, Dunning and Kruger, right, they are quoted as saying, the incompetent are often blessed with inappropriate confidence, buoyed by something that feels to them like knowledge. I think we all deal with that and unfortunately display it more frequently than uh, we might like. You know, a corollary to that effect is when people tend to oversimplify things that they're not really familiar with, like how government works. For example, I have a vague understanding of how the display in my iPhone works, but I sure as heck couldn't design or build one. But that doesn't keep me from using it to my great personal satisfaction and advantage. Everything looks simple from the outside when all you have to do is use or enjoy the result. I mean, so maybe another way to think about it is people with limited knowledge on any given subject often don't have enough knowledge to know they don't have enough knowledge. <laughs> but let's remember, willful ignorance is, in fact, a valid short-term coping mechanism. It's related to the concept of abstraction, which is a critical tool in analyzing any complex system. After all, no one uses Einstein's field equations or Schrodinger's wave function to design buildings and cars and bridges. Instead, we use Newtonian mechanics or even rules of thumb because while dumb, they are much easier to use and work okay in most situations. Yeah, and that's fair, but I think the trick is to understand when those rules of thumb may not work. And in politics, that's often a matter of understanding those unknown unknowns which are by definition impossible. So sort of stupidity will always be with us, right, in the political arena. As Donald Rumsfeld used to say, it's the unknown unknowns that really bite you in the ass. Okay, Mark, well, that's a good uh, reference to something that's happened in recent history. And I know you're our history uh, expert here. So let's talk about the history of ignorance in American politics. I mean, I always have to remind myself that although it does seem really bad right now, we do have this sort of proud history of ignorant <laughs> rhetoric and actions, right, in this country, I mean, particularly in politics. Certainly one of the most famous examples of that was one of my favorite political parties called the Know-Nothings, which flourished in the mid-1850s. It was a nativist and xenophobic party that believed in all kinds of conspiracies, including one that there was a plot among Catholics to subvert the United States. Yeah, and I remember that they were officially called the American Party, but they got their nickname because members of the movement were required to say, I know nothing, whenever they were asked about its, their specifics. I mean, not exactly an example of inclusivity. Another example, more recent one, is the Second Iraq War. That was just a plain, dumb decision, not even in hindsight. It's where people who should have known better, like Colin Powell, got caught up in a groupthink process where they decided to invade a country that wasn't really any realistic threat to us at all. Let's move forward now to the modern Republican Party, because they seem to have drifted this way over the last few decades. It seems to me that they've sort of morphed from a party that believed in lower taxes, less government spending, more individual freedom, to a party that now really is focused on embracing conspiracy and, frankly, celebrating ignorance. A disturbing evolution, particularly for those of us uh, who, like me, who used to be Republicans. It saddens me, in fact, that there seems to be an endless list of examples among modern Republican candidates and leaders of this kind of disturbing trend. Think about Sarah Palin. She reveled in her ignorance about how the government worked and even about historical facts. She insisted that Paul Revere warned the British. Yeah, I remember that. And I think one of the crazy examples, you know, was former Representative Todd Akin. He's the one who insisted that women 
who are raped can't get pregnant despite the literally thousands of years of evidence we have to the contrary. Yeah, and then you look more recently, look at like guys like Ben Carson and Rand Paul. They're both doctors, yet they repeatedly demonstrate ignorance not only of scientific analysis, but are overtly hostile to science per se. Yeah, so unfortunately, this tendency seems to be getting worse. I mean, not just dumb politicians, but dumb topics that I can't believe we waste time needing to argue about and to resist. I mean, whether it's climate change denial or quack COVID cures and and pushing those versus proven scientific approaches like vaccinations and, and masks. There have always been fringe political figures and ideas throughout history and not just in American history. But it sure seems like in the last couple of decades, we have somehow normalized and amplified them. I mean, a perfect example was uh, Pizzagate. I mean, it's crazy how many people actually believed Hillary Clinton was running a child sex trafficking ring from the back of a pizza place. It seemed like if in the past that would have been easily pegged as a hoax or a joke, you know, but suddenly, at least among, you know, a significant subset of our population, it became normal. Something else like that is this whole thing involving QAnon, something so far-fetched, it's personally embarrassing to many of us that so many of our fellow Americans believe it. Yeah, and I and I know one of my favorite examples, and I realize this phenomenon is exaggerated, and of course it's based on confirmation bias and a whole bunch of other things, but I love the concept of the quote-unquote Florida man, which is a series of seemingly never-ending news stories that reinforce the stereotype of Americans being really dumb. You know, a headline, Florida man run over by van after dog pushes accelerator. Right? I mean, there are entire <laughs> websites devoted to Florida man stories, and you could get a one, once-a-day calendar, Mark. You know, it's 365 different examples each year, so maybe uh, I'll send you that as a gift. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll look forward to it. As, as disturbing and humorous as this discussion is at this point, I think it begs an important question. Why does ignorance, willful or not, play so well on the public stage? After all, no one that I know of actually wants to be seen as ignorant or stupid. So why do we sometimes seem to reward it when it's on display? We'll come back to this after first talking about how this current age of ignorance makes an impact on our society. Okay, when thinking about the impact of this ignorance, I mean, we have to recognize there is a feedback loop between this normalization of dumb words and behavior with political power. We seem to almost daily witness politicians leveraging this collective ignorance for their own benefit. Or embracing and encouraging ignorance as a means of bolstering their brand. Right. I mean, whether it's Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, or literally thousands of politicians on both the national and local levels, they seem to leverage the banner of, you know, populism to rally support for issues that are objectively harmful to those same people. Like book banning, keeping people ignorant of things that they need to know, or the willful ignorance of science that gets promulgated and stymies a, a realistic debate about abortion, or even more pocketbook-wise, economic policies that actually harm the very people that end up supporting those politicians. Unfortunately, this kind of populism also leads to things like xenophobic, racist, anti-Semitic, or even misogynistic policies. Right, and we think about how politicians are able to do this Fundamentally, I think they're successful because they're leveraging another powerful psychological phenomenon, which is the avoidance of cognitive dissonance. It's an incredibly powerful force that really may be the main fuel behind, you know, what we've called intellectual stubbornness, you know, and they have the authority to fire up this mass delusion or belief in conspiracy theories, for example. 
They can also easily leverage religion, particularly fundamentalist religious beliefs, because those belief systems are potentially absolutist by nature and therefore as a result stifle or cut off any kind of rational debate once they get triggered and brought into the conversation. And we have to recognize that another result of this feedback loop is a really dangerous reframing of intellectualism as somehow a bad thing or somehow dangerous or at a minimum out of touch. This anti-science trend, which, as we've noted, is ironic, given that we are the most advanced scientific <laughs> culture that's ever lived, right? But we now have this area where it's okay to not trust experts, whether it's Dr. Fauci or anybody else. And maybe it's because, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of us want things to be simple, even if the simplification is wrong. People go around thinking of, like, universities not as a place for learning or critical thinking, but being labeled as a place for indoctrination. And that is a really dangerous trend. Uh, the substitute they do through book banning and, uh, and controlling what gets taught in the classroom, that's yet another form of indoctrination, which they don't happen to notice as indoctrination. I do think we need to be clear, though, that questioning authority isn't inherently bad. I used to own and display bumper stickers saying question authority, but we certainly need to maintain a balance between simply trusting experts on the one hand and understanding when they may be serving their self-interest on the other. Unfortunately, clearly the pendulum today has swung very far towards rejecting any and all expert advice that we just don't happen to like. Right, and it feels like the Republican Party itself over the last few decades has become more popular, particularly relative to the popularity of their specific issues, by being populist, which includes the idea of questioning authority and, and bashing intellectualism. It's interesting when you think about this part of the discussion in the context of the last eight presidents that the United States has had and their own sort of positions on, let's call it, intellectualism. Three of the last four Democratic presidents were considered by most people to be intellectuals, Carter, Clinton, and Obama. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say they were all proud of being recognized that way. Conversely, three of the last four Republican presidents were generally considered to be anti-intellectual, Reagan, Bush Jr., and Trump. And they too tended to be proud of that, which is interesting. Okay, so let's discuss why, despite our earlier history lesson, why we do seem to be dumber now. I mean, what do we have now that the Know Nothing Party didn't in the mid-19th century? Well, for one thing, we're all much better connected to each other. And it's really inexpensive to communicate any kind of information, true or false, to a vast number of people. And on top of that, it's so inexpensive to talk and interact with people that it makes it much easier for groups of like-minded people to find each other and self-organize than at any other time in our history. So I think that's caused us to enter an era of this exploding confirmation bias. We've been manipulated to only listen to ideas that match our preconceived notions, and it's become pretty easy to filter out anything we don't want to see. Seth, media has always profited from trafficking and paranoia, hate, and ignorance. That's why journalists always say, if it bleeds, it leads. But now they can do it much more efficiently than ever before. That's the source of Fox News' success. But Mark, you've reminded me many times that people like William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer kind of took the same approach as Rupert Murdoch, but I, but I guess it was done in a world that was far less connected, you know, a world that was generally a lot more expensive, right, to communicate so broadly. That's true. But on the other hand, the business model of news itself has changed in the last few decades, particularly for traditional media, traditional broadcast media. It used to be that the news divisions were subsidized by a network's entertainment arm. And just as important, network TV today doesn't hold the oligopoly it once did. It's less profitable and therefore less able to subsidize a news organization. So I guess that means that today, almost every news outlet, even ones that aren't intentionally leveraging paranoia, have realized that their business model requires that high level of value 
on things like controversy and drama over the truth. That's right. And it's also caused many news outlets to twist themselves into knots to show, quote, both sides, unquote, of an issue, even if there really aren't two sides or multiple sides to an issue. Yeah, I always found this really amazing and incredibly ironic when I think of like CNN, for example. They were so afraid of people calling them liberal because people did that they made this sort of dramatic commitment to sort of even headedness or both sides. And, you know, I remember once watching a debate on air on CNN that was about climate change and they had a one side like a Nobel laureate and the other side like a blogger. Right. I mean, it was so silly. Right. Because they were so worried about looking biased. They did this for such a long time, even in the way they dealt with Trump. And I think it took them to about halfway through his presidency until they really shifted the way they did it. And they actually called out the intellectual dishonesty. But it took them quite a while. Fox News basically just decided to make paranoia, hate and controversy its explicit business model and then demonstrated how incredibly economically valuable that model actually is today. Interestingly, in doing so, they effectively opened Pandora's box. And they created this race to the bottom. I mean, Fox isn't really worried about competition from CNN or MSNBC, right? I mean, they're worried about like OAN and Newsmax. What's also interesting is that Fox and others use a more clever marketing tactic than just appealing to ignorance. They go to great lengths to project the appearance of intellectualism so as to mask the anti-intellectual content that they're actually pushing. Why do they do that? Well, probably because pushing blatant ignorance would turn off most viewers. Even Fox doesn't want to come across as the National Enquirer. Even within Fox, like specific broadcasters like Tucker Carlson, they go a lot further. They use this technique to mask a political agenda as news and information. I guess it also happens on all levels of media and government, right? Even locally. I mean, Mark, you know, you know someone that you serve with who would regularly <laughs> quote a founding father or Shakespeare and, and do it completely out of context, right? So from a surface level, it kind of sounded thoughtful, but like a minimum amount of examination, it was actually a pretty hollow and anti-intellectual comment. And it's not just broadcasters. Social media plays a huge role in this process, too. Even though the goal of Facebook and Twitter was to democratize information, they failed to see the downsides of doing so. Well, ultimately, they're just prioritizing volume on some level over expertise. And, and I know you and I both believe that all voices have a right to be heard, but we also have to recognize that not all vo voices are equally valuable to the community when making public decisions. Expertise matters, particularly in complex situations. But identifying expertise takes a lot of hard work, in part because you're trying to assess something that you yourself are likely not an expert on. I think there are areas where social media does work really well. Um, I think when the topic being discussed isn't really central to your own identity, you know, when it travel, things like Yelp and TripAdvisor, social media actually works pretty well. But that's not true in the political realm. More broadly, I think part of the problem is that humans haven't really evolved to handle the volume of connections that our current technology allows us to have. You see this kind of effect even in something as what appears to be off topic as startup companies growing. Organizations that grow beyond about uh, 200, 250 people generally have to be led and managed differently because the typical human can't identify with a tribe much bigger than that. And I think there's another thing going on, particularly in social media, that there's this illusion that it's a bottoms up organizing tool. And really, it's just another type of powerful tool for connected people and organizations to manipulate others. I mean, a perfect example, of course, was Russia's involvement in the 2016 election. And it's also similar to the fact that almost every, quote, grassroots, unquote, California initiative that's ever been put on the ballot was put there by an organization with an economic interest in the outcome. 
so there's this incredible duality of social media, right? On the one hand, it could provide a community to the improperly marginalized. But on the other hand, it is also given the properly marginalized ability to connect and amplify their hate and destructive power. And what's particularly disturbing about these trends being enabled and fostered by media companies and, and uh, you know, online companies is that studies have shown that there are at least three major forces that collectively bind successful democracies together and that you need to have them. The first is social capital, extensive social networks with high levels of trust between the players. Strong institutions is the second one. And the last one, oddly enough, is shared stories, shared histories and beliefs and perspectives. Unfortunately, the current trend in media and particularly in social media has weakened all three of those and put ourselves consequently at risk. Mark, I think there's another element to understanding all of this. And this is the part, you know, where it feels like despite all of the cries of cancel culture, and, you know, we had an earlier podcast on that topic, despite all of that, the level of accountability actually seems to be much lower today than it's ever been. Like, I don't know if you know this, but Back in 1984, I was actually in a broadcast booth broadcasting the press conference that then presidential candidate Gary Hart was speaking, and he famously derailed his campaign by refusing to answer a question about whether or not he had an affair. Today, well-known politicians and media personalities who have said and did a lot worse things aren't seemingly held accountable. Another thing that always strikes me, I'm dating myself a little bit here, can you imagine Walter Cronkite ever saying anything like what Tucker Carlson says every single day? Yeah, so, but instead, he doesn't suffer any consequences. He doesn't have any accountability. Tucker Carlson only gets more powerful and, and richer. Personalities like Cronkite would have lost their position because we apparently used to care more about whether our experts were, in fact, telling us the truth. And now, because we value confirming our preconceived notions more than value, you know, learning the truth, I guess it seems to get rid of that accountability. Seth, as we discussed in our earlier podcast on progressivism and conservatism, as well as the podcast on risk analysis, in our fast-moving society, so many people are so fearful of change that they have this primal need to be on a powerful team to protect themselves. But whether that team is based on the truth is kind of seems less important than the fact that it's powerful and seemingly protective, right? Sadly, that desire to be safe, to be protected even though I fully understand it and share it myself, it ends up subverting principles such as liberty and the belief in objective truths that our democracy is built on. And so maybe another way to say that is that critical thinking kind of goes out the window when we surrender to fear. And powerful leaders leverage that fear using the classical tools of autocrats to reinforce their own power. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good to remember that people like Napoleon or Hitler or Putin or Trump all came to power in response to widespread fear about the immediate future, effectively overriding a good deal of common sense. I've always read in many histories that it's, it's taken as an article of faith that one of the ways that democracies traditionally fall is when their members fear so much for the future that they're willing to give up their liberty for safety and security, to give, the, give those things up, however valuable they are, for the man on the white horse. But what's given rise to this higher level of fear? I mean, we're wealthier, healthier, and better connected than we've ever been in history. Seth, those improvements, as good as they are, are changes, and they were accompanied by a lot of upheaval to traditional norms, to ways of life. And lest we forget, the benefits and costs of those changes were not evenly distributed. And on top of that, it's probably been made worse because many folks, like we've discussed in the media and politics, are effectively putting their thumb on the fear scale to profit from it. 
You know, speaking of American leaders putting their thumb on the fear scale, I've always wondered whether this dumbness trend that we're discussing has actually affected the U.S. more than other countries. I mean, I know it's difficult to measure this, but it kind of feels like it could be true. I think it is happening all around the world, fueled by the same kind of forces that we've been discussing. You know, you look at Brexit in the UK, Rupert Murdoch and others in Australia. The other countries are also gripped by fear and tribalism. Sure, but it does feel like America has this unique position, right, because of its leadership role in the world. I think you're onto something. Success in leadership can lead to jingoism, which can in turn devolve into either corruption or stupidity, neither of which are good outcomes. And you see that all over the world, like in Russia and China, not just in the U.S., You know, it reminds me of one of my least favorite phrases, (laughs) and I find it to be one of my least favorite because it feels like it fuels anti-intellectualism. It's a sort of quasi-religion of what we call, quote-unquote, American exceptionalism. This The notion that the U.S. is somehow inherently different from other nations and destined and entitled to play sort of this distinct role on the world stage. In reality, we earned our place on the world stage based on our own efforts, our favorable geography, our willingness to violate our principles and enslave others— And of course, chance. But we tend to discount all but the first one. Yeah, so I guess it's not surprising. America has a particular humility problem. And without humility, it is hard to think critically because you think you're right. I've had the privilege, Mark, of traveling a fair bit to many places around the world. And and I've definitely seen a pattern among people in other countries and how they view the U.S., I've heard you say, Seth, that your experience has been most people in those countries actually like Americans quite a bit, contrary to the ugly American stereotype. And in general, they admire the U.S. Yeah, that's absolutely right. However, you also hear this sadness and disappointment that folks around the world have with the U.S., right? They look at the extreme wealth and position of our country, and they're frankly puzzled how we could make so many choices that appear to fly in the face of what we supposedly stand for. And whether it has to do with issues like healthcare, whether it has to do with guns, whether it has to do with climate change, they're just truly befuddled. I've heard you tell how they were particularly flummoxed how a country like the U.S. could have elected someone like Donald Trump, who literally made stupid comments daily, as well as the other MAGA bozos we've discussed on this podcast. Yeah, so the interesting question, Mark, is why is a nation so advanced, so well-educated, so successful in generating new ideas, technologies, businesses, making such ill-informed choices? De Tocqueville, who was a traveler to the then-new United States in the early 19th century, may have stumbled across part of the answer to that. He observed that the American system of government actually did a better job at representing individuals than its counterparts in Western Europe, but that most Americans believed it didn't and it secretly was controlled by out-of-sight masterminds. That paranoid fear of the government is deeply embedded in the American psyche, making it difficult for the community to make reasonable decisions. It also creates a wonderful playing field for unscrupulous politicians, generally these days from the right, unfortunately, to exploit. And I think another factor that you realize when you travel a lot is that Americans are culturally a lot more isolated than, say, Europeans, right, because of the lack of proximity to many other countries. So we tend to look inward more. Like Shakespeare observed, we tend to think the ways of our tribe are the ways the world should work. Yeah, American culture also elevates individualism far above its rank in most other cultures that I'm familiar with. This tends to encourage people to ignore community issues and community needs and devalue the importance of having a high-functioning community in the first place in order to spark and support individual success. And then when I think about other differences between America and many other countries, certainly in the Western world, 
it seems like that religion is one of them because here it plays a much more significant role in our culture than it does in most of the other advanced Western democracies, which is a bit ironic because most of those, you know, for many hundreds of years are actually uh, tied officially to religion, whereas we were not. And yet it seems to appear in our politics much more often than it does, let's say, in in most uh, European political discussions. I agree, although I think it's not that being religious itself is causing a problem. It's fundamentalist religion by claiming divine inspiration for its tenets that makes it difficult for its adherents to grapple with nuance and complexity. If you already have the answer from your book, why do you need to struggle with a messy reality? Right. Well, not to mention that if your religious belief encourages you to believe you're following the one true way, fueling intolerance and discouraging you from considering, let alone accepting, you know, other points of view. The last important factor, I think, is one we discussed in depth a moment ago, social media and the democratization of voices. That's benefited us tremendously, but it's also led to reduced critical thinking on important issues. And since the U.S. is the hub of social media, we own most of the major platforms, and we tend to take a light regulatory touch to business in general, its effects are greater here. Okay, Mark, so let's pivot towards solutions and recommendations, as we like to do at the end of these podcasts. But uh, let's start with a question I have for you. I mean, is it too late? I mean, have we opened Pandora's box, as you referenced? (laughs) Seth, that's a rhetorical question if I ever heard one. Yes, we have, because there were a lot of goodies inside that box. We just have to learn how to deal with the new challenges and the risks that it contains as well. Okay, let me give you a more specific question. How do we make debates around issues substantive again? Well, that sounds like an acronym that probably wouldn't fit nicely on a hat. But how do we make those debates substantive and not just have this weird dichotomy of an informed point of view on one side versus a proudly ignorant one on the other side? I think we need to start by remembering there really is an objective reality we all share, and there are objective truths. We don't always know what they are, and it can be hard to determine what they are. But whenever possible, we need to prioritize and give more weight to viewpoints based on real-world, objective data and objective truths than just mere opinions. And of course, that leads to right-valuing expertise. I mean, we should always assess both the expertise and motivation of anyone who claims to speak the truth, but we still need to value that expertise remembering that it should have nothing to do with whether it aligns with our own preconceived notions. Although I know we should practice this as individuals, it feels even more important to me that we support media outlets and politicians who in turn support expertise, as opposed to those who kind of elevate ignorance to be its own valid point of view, kind of framing it as one side of an issue that really shouldn't be one. Speaking of media outlets, I think there's certainly room to have some more regulation of social media. You know, at a minimum, those platforms could require individual users to always uh, basically identify themselves, to be verified. And beyond that, I think there's also an opportunity for the political advertising that they accept to be limited or regulated in some fashion. We try to do that in other places as well. Yeah, and I'm going to throw this one in, even though I know it's unrealistic, but it's a really important point because I still hold out hope for the sort of larger political reforms, which I think can mitigate the ignorance trend by forcing our elected representatives to actually serve the public, right? These changes include getting rid of gerrymandering, having publicly financed elections, and of course, getting rid of the Electoral College. But I realize that's, you know, a big swing. Yeah, yeah, it is. Part of the discussion here has kind of reminded me of something that uh, uh, I was told many years ago. Unfortunately, in general, once 
adults reach probably age 40, 45, or 50, most of them, you're never going to really get them to change their fundamentals for the rest of their lives. That puts a premium on making sure that we do as good a job as we possibly can educating our children. Yeah, I mean, sure. you, know, you know, for example, we should never allow things like book banning or don't teach my child anything I don't agree with to take hold. That's just totally counterproductive from a societal point of view. And we should make sure that we work hard and our teachers work hard for our kids to hone their critical thinking skills, teaching them how to question authority constructively. But beyond that, I personally think that we need to do a much better job of teaching civics, teaching how successful communities actually function like we try to do here. Hey, it sounds like uh, the boiling frog should be required listening for all students. How about that? <laughs> I'd be okay with that. Yeah, Mark. Well, that was another fun discussion and definitely a, a more serious one, as we promised. And like many of the other topics we've discussed, sadly, both depressing and hopeful at the same time. Yeah, I guess that's a good summary of what it was. So thanks for listening, everyone. Signing off. This is Seth. And Mark. Hoping that you help make America a critical thinker again. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. We'll see you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.